The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The world is looking to us. They are asking if the United Nations is prepared to meet this moment. I would like to see Congress consider secondary sanctions because that's just going to get the whole world to really join us in this effort. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. The A's are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. African-American women are the most loyal Democrats. They're vital to our coalition, and this was a promise kept to them. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Congress might be gone, but we are here and we are looking ahead to what Washington, D.C. needs to get done in the next few weeks. We've also got a great lineup today. We're going to be chatting with Congressman Jim Jordan, an Ohio Republican. And on the other side of the aisle, we'll be speaking with Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, the Democrat representing the District of Columbia. This is Emily Wilkins here with my co-host, Jack Fitzpatrick. We have been filling in for Joe Matthew all week. It is Friday. You have made it to the end of the week, and we have made it to our market report with Charlie Pellet. Well, joining us now, we've got Congressman Jim Jordan, a Republican from Ohio. And Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. Good to be with you today. Great to have you. Well, I I would just want to get started off. Uh, You are currently the top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee. It doesn't mean a ton because Republicans aren't in charge right now. But if things go well for y'all in November, you are poised to be chair next year. And you've spoken a bit about a lot of things that Republicans want to investigate. I've seen immigration. I've heard COVID origins, Hunter Biden, Justice Department, parents. Mm -hmm. You only have two years. What is your number one priority for investigation? Well, we, I mean, uh, we got to win first. So, you know, we never want to get the cart before the horse here. Uh, my, my background's in sports, and I learned, you know, it's, it's always good to be confident. But to the American people, talk about just how wrong the Democrats have been and, and win. But if we win, I think number one's got to be immigration. We're the Committee of Primary Jurisdiction on Immigration Policy, and we now have just a complete chaotic situation on the border. So that'll be front and center. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look to do investigations on why the Mayorkas uh, – DHS and the Biden administration has been so, so bad. It's got to be intentional. It's got to be delivered. So I think that'll be front and center. Then, of course, what's happened at the Justice Department, the, the concern for people's privacy and, and fundamental liberties with this Pegasus uh, the software that Pegasus software they've bought, uh, the, 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 the story that was this week about how they're scraping people's social media uh, and, and looking at what, what, you know, folks all over the country, what they're doing. So the privacy concerns, First Amendment liberties uh, will be front and center. And that fits right in with the, the, the you know, the crazy stuff that went on with uh, that's going on as we speak, uh, targeting parents as domestic terrorists. So we'll, we'll look at all those issues uh, if, in fact, we're the, the, the people of this great country give us the majority. I have to say, I mean, certainly immigration is an important topic. I'm, I'm kind of surprised, though, that you didn't mention Hunter Biden. I think I've heard from a lot of Republicans who want to see more investigation on, on that. Is that also something Republicans are going to look into? 
we got to look at uh, that issue. we got to look at the fact that I think Dr. Fauci misled the country. I think he knew from the get-go this was likely from the lab. Uh, and, you know, we've had, we've had um, physicians testify and say that if they'd have known that and, 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 and that, that had been information they had right at the get-go, that could have actually potentially changed how we dealt with this and potentially saved lives. So uh, I think those are both investigations we have to, uh, have to get into. The Hunter Biden situation, I think, is going to be um, um, a, a conference-wide decision on how we go about that. Uh, with you know, then it, you know, Leader McCarthy, then then speak, hopefully, then Speaker uh, McCarthy. So, um, but yeah, those have to be examined as well. I mean, you think about the, the the Hunter Biden story. I mean, 18 months ago, this was Russian disinformation, and and now we know it's true. We know it's true not because Jim Jordan, not because Donald Trump, not because Republicans said so, Emily, but because well, the Justice the Department's Post- looking into it at this point. Yeah, yeah, but but also the Washington Post did two stories within within uh, uh, two eight-page stories within four minutes uh, of each other uh, a week ago Wednesday, one at eleven, one at eleven oh four a.m. Long, detailed stories about this situation. So um, that's something we also need to look at: is why the 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 big tech, big media, and Democrats colluded, and maybe most importantly, we sent a letter on this the other day: why fifty-one former Intel officials signed on to a letter that said this has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation, when in fact we all knew at the time that that, that the laptop was real, the eyewitness was real, the emails, the documents were real. The only thing fake was the news. So, Congressman, uh, in terms of current investigations, I've got to ask, you know, the members of the January 6th committee have honed in lately on this seven-and-a-half-hour gap in the White House's official phone records on January 6, 2021, 11.17 a.m. to 6.54 p.m. Uh, I'm curious, did you talk to the president at all during that time? I talked to the president that day. I've been clear about that. I talked to the president all the time. I don't recall how many times I talked to him when those times were, uh, but I talked to the president all the time, just like just like you talk to people you know, uh, friends you have, uh, just like you talk to him all the time. But our response to everything about this is we got a letter you're, you're happy to have. Uh, I'm sure you got a copy of the letter we sent back to the January 6th committee. Uh, happy to, If you don't have one, I'm happy to get one to you uh, that you can uh, you can read the whole thing on the air as far as I'm concerned. So uh, we spell out in there our concerns about this entire political committee. Uh, first time in the history of the Congress, the minority leader was not allowed to place on a select committee the individuals he or she is selected. First time in the history of our country that was allowed. And that, that just tells you how political this thing is with one with one goal, and that's to keep President Trump off the ballot in 2024. With that I don't in think mind, be successful. and I, I hear you on your complaints about how that committee has gone. Are, do you have concerns about the, the missing White House logs? And will you, would you mind telling us anything about what you spoke about well, I with saw, the former I, I president? Saw the story just like, I saw the story just like you did that uh, this was uh, the, the, uh, the story. I can't remember who, who read, ran it. But that uh, this was a nor- normal practice. There's, there's, there's not laws of the president's calls in the middle of the day because he's operating from, from the Oval Office. Uh, so, but, but of course, the press made it out to be like, oh, this is the missing calls, just like the missing section of Nixon's uh, tapes, the Watergate tapes. When in fact, that looks like it wasn't even close to the to, to the facts. This is just uh, kind of the, the the normal process of the way the White House logs are kept. Depending Congress- on where the president is in the White House and, and what calls it, you, you know, if he's in the residence versus if he was, uh, if I remember the story, versus uh, in the uh, Oval Office. And did you speak with him during that, that time period? I know that the records have shown that you spoke with Trump at uh, 924 a.m. that morning. But did you also speak with him later in the day during that seven hour gap? 
I, I, I did speak to him. I, again, I don't recall the exact times, but I, like I said, I don't recall. I, I, I spoke to the president this week. He called me a couple times this week. I speak to the president all the time. So, uh, again, I don't recall the exact times, and I typically don't get into the details of conversations I have with the president of the United States. So you can't, can't get into, into any details that you're willing to share any details yeah, you discussed with him? Yeah, you got you, you have uh, you got you got our letter. It's a long letter. We went through all kinds of information. That letter, uh, one of the things we pointed out was that the January sixth committee had taken had altered evidence about a text message I had for had altered evidence and presented it to the American people as if it were something else, and 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 so much so they had to apologize. They they said the, the January sixth committee says we we apologize for and regret regret the uh, the 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 error. That that is government speak for oh we got caught lying, which is exactly what they were doing. So you got a committee completely political, won't let Republicans on that the, the minority leader selected, a select committee won't, won't let them on. First time in American history, and then also alters evidence and lies about it. I, I think uh, I think the country understands what this committee is really about. Uh, Congressman, on, on some broader uh, political issues, I got to follow up. It, it sounded like you said hopefully Kevin McCarthy himself becomes speaker. Uh, what changed from the time when conservatives were pushing against Kevin McCarthy for speaker and in favor of Paul Ryan? I, I mean, it sounds like you've have you changed your mind? Has he changed? Why are you so positive about Kevin Ke- McCarthy for speaker? Kevin has done a, Kevin has done a great job of keeping the the, the conference united. And I, I go back to the the first big test was the first impeachment. Conventional wisdom uh, was prior to that uh, impeachment that that every single Democrat was going to vote to impeach President Trump. And some Republicans would would join him. And actually, it turned out to be just the opposite. Every single Republican in the House voted against impeachment, and Democrats joined us, and one even switched parties. So that is a testament to how you keep the team together focused on the facts and the truth. Uh, I've been uh, uh, very encouraged by, by the way Kevin's been able to do that. Um, and I think he's done that so much better, frankly, than uh, – than, than, than the two previous Republican leaders. It's a little different in the minority, I understand, but um, he's done, I think, a, a darn good job. And then, of course, some of the other things you have to do when you're leader of the conference uh, is, is uh, on the political side, he's been uh, very good at as well. I also wanted to ask, Congressman, you're one of the founding members of the House Freedom Caucus. And in the past, with other Republican speakers, that caucus was known for really defying party leadership, kind of being the rebels. Do you see the Freedom Caucus taking on a similar role next year if we do have a speaker, Kevin McCarthy? The, the, role, the, 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 you know, the vision and the mission of the Freedom Caucus is, is real plain, real simple. It is to, to do what the voters elected us to do, to fight for the countless number of Americans, a countless number of American families who feel like Washington's forgotten them. Our job is to remember them, fight for them, and do what we said we would do. I mean, sure, but, but, that, but that's every member of Congress, right? Every member is elected. Well, every member's job is to represent where they come from. The Freedom Caucus really did stand out, that is, uh, you know, when disagree. under Speaker Boehner and, and Speaker Paul Ryan. Should we expect something yeah, similar? You know why? Because, because, because at that time we weren't doing what we said we were going to do. I mean, we, we, we come in and, and, and take the majority in 2010, come in in 2011, we were supposed to reduce spending, and we really didn't do that. We, we, uh, and then, of course, we come in with uh, Paul Ryan, we were supposed to repeal Obamacare, we didn't get that done. Uh, some people voted against the very, in essence, the very same bill they had voted for just few, a few months before that. So the, that, that is, uh, that's the problem. Our job is to make sure we do what we told the voters we were going to do. So did the Freedom Caucus essentially already win by conquering the House Republican Conference and you will come in with leadership more in your favor? Is that basically what you, the, that caucus has uh, in, encompassed the conference to a, a greater degree? 
Well, I, I mean, I, I just feel like our uh, under under the leadership of President Trump, um, and I, I think actually with some some you know push by the Freedom Caucus, I think our entire party now understands we are a populist party rooted in conservative principle, and that is that has been that is I, I think you know. President Trump did more to push us in that direction where I think we should have always been than anyone, and he's the leader of our party. Uh, we are a populist party, <clears throat> but still, still, you know, uh, still rooted in those those key conservative principles of uh, lower taxes, less government, uh, standing mm-hmm. up for the First Amendment, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, a pro-life party. Well, those those core things, and that's why you see a state like ours, Ohio. Sure. Well, Congressman. Congressman, sorry to interrupt. We are going to have to leave it there, but we really do appreciate you joining us today. That was Congressman Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio. Thank you again for your time today. Up next, we assemble the panel. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. This is Emily Wilkins here with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick. We are in for Joe this week, and now it is time for us to assemble our all-star panel that you know and love, Bloomberg Politics politics contributors Jeannie Shianzano and Rick Davis. You guys, thank you both so much for, for taking the time to join us today. Um, I just wanted to sort of follow up real quick on the discussion we just had with Congressman Jim Jordan from Ohio. Uh, you know, if Republicans win in November and we have historical precedent to to suggest that they might, uh, he's going to be chair of the Judiciary Committee. He talked a bit about some of the investigations uh, that he was looking into. And, and Rick, I just want to see if he can give us some context here. I mean, when Republicans talk about what they're going to investigate, how much of these investigations are usually substance? And how much is just politics? You know, I, I think it just depends upon which member is initiating them. You know, there are a lot of members who truly want to get to the bottom of um, uh, finding out, you know, answers to questions that they can't get any other way than to uh, to launch an investigation, a formal investigation. And others, you know, uh, uh, see more political impact uh, by their investigations. I think the ones he talked about, you know, that uh, uh, really fall into both those categories are immigration and justice, right? Those are legitimate questions to problems that exist today that don't have obvious public answers. And so the committee digging into those things might elicit some potential policy formulations that come out of that. Uh, certainly the southern border is a mess, and we got to find a way to solve that. Um, I, I think on Hunter Biden and Fauci, purely political, right? I mean, like, there's no breathless answers to public policy questions, you know, in those two. And, uh, and so I, 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 and I have no doubt there are many more uh, that the committee would pursue under his leadership. And Jeannie, what did you make of Congressman Jordan's tone and, and answers on Kevin McCarthy? He seemed very positive on him now. He he did. You know, I, I think he is reflecting what is the view of the Republican caucus at this point, that they feel that Kevin McCarthy has, you know, led them in the right direction, that they are on the precipice of winning. And I think you and Emily did such a good job of sort of showcasing for all of us, if they win to Emily's point in November, what life is going to be like in Washington, D.C. come January. We are going to see the House engaging in massive oversight investigations and the Senate as well, should they go Republican. We will then have a divided government and we will be, you know, more in the condition of investigation and oversight than we will in solving problems. You know, I appreciate what Rick is saying about immigration and about 
the Justice Department, their investigations into Pegasus and all that stuff. But in a divided government, it's hard to see how they push through, particularly if it's close numbers, many of these things they would like to do, regardless of how these investigations come out. And I feel like no matter who is in control of Congress, I think one thing that all political reporters watch pretty closely is how the majority party is sticking together. Certainly, we have covered the progressives and Manchin at length while Democrats have been in charge. But if Republicans take the House, we are going to be looking closely at these dynamics between leadership and the Freedom Caucus. Or Rick Davis, I'm just wondering what, what your kind of takeaway was there. It, it doesn't seem like Jordan was ready to gear up and be combative with the Freedom Caucus. Is it just not what it was or does he probably not want to show his cards this early no i, I think he said it yeah, the, yeah and i think you, uh, either you or jack pointed out i think the freedom caucus is one they are the majority now uh, what used to be as you pointed out a rabble-rousing group of people who made the uh, you know the majority uh a leader or the speaker uh, uh crazy over time uh have now become uh, the people who are in charge i think part of the reason he was so positive about Kevin McCarthy as a new speaker is because Kevin McCarthy is bent over backwards to accommodate these uh, what used to be minority views. And so, um, you know, declare victory and move on. Uh, the last thing he wants is disruption. If anything, the people who will be more disruptive will be the folks who used to be in charge. Yeah, it'll be very interesting dynamics. Also want to touch quickly on what is coming up when Congress gets back from that two-week recess. We got a lot of things on the table. I want to start, though, with the COVID funding package. I mean, we left that off. That was enmeshed in that immigration debate over Title 42. Jeannie, do you sort of see any way at this point to get that COVID funding bill across the line? You know, it's so funny. I was just talking to somebody about this. You know, usually you don't like to say things are sort of baked in in April before Easter break. But in this environment, you know, should they pass something for COVID preparedness? Absolutely. Look at what's going on in terms of COVID numbers in Washington, D.C. and New York City alone. They should pass it. And yet it is going to be difficult for them to clear that. You know, I think that the, what happened with Title 42, Republicans raising that and pushing for a vote, could Democrats try to surmount that and, and try to get a vote? Yes, they can. But I think it's going to be even more difficult when they get back in two weeks than it was when they left the other day. So I am not incredibly hopeful that we'll see that happen anytime soon. And Rick, real quick, uh, th this is only half of what the White House asked for. They're going to have to work on that and how much more? Yeah, I think that they're, they're going to have to find a vehicle at this stage. Uh, they're going to have to come to grips, at least this administration, with what to do about Title 42. It's not just Republicans who are complaining about the Title 42 uh, going into suspension. There are dem Many Democrats have expressed a lot of problems with it. They're not going to get COVID funding until they've tackled that. And honestly, what I don't understand is why that's so hard. I mean, like Title 42 was in place for a long time. As we've just all said, there continues to be a pandemic that's raging through a lot of cities, including many along the border. And yet they released Title 42, which was put in place to bat battle COVID. So uh, I, I think there needs to just be a comeuppance. People need to sort of get together and say, you know, COVID funding is important and, and, and we, we can't hold Title 42 yeah. uh, uh, as hostage to that. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. I know there's some bipartisan legislation out there that would tie Title 42 to the official end of the pandemic. Well, Rick, Jeannie, stick around. We'll be back in just a minute. But first, we're going to hear from Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton. She's going to be coming up next on Sound On. This is Bloomberg.
Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Hosting today with my Bloomberg government colleague, Emily Wilkins. Joe's coming back next week. We spoke this afternoon with Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, the delegate of the in the House of Representatives from the District of Columbia. We talked about Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation to the Supreme Court. We even talked about helicopters. And if you are among our listeners in the District of Columbia, you probably already know why we're asking about helicopters. We caught up with Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton of the District of Columbia this afternoon, and obviously we had to ask her about the biggest news of the week, at least in the United States Senate, the confirmation of Katanji Brown Jackson to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, a big deal, especially for someone like the delegate from the District of Columbia, uh, obviously uh, Justice uh, Judge Jackson having been a, a longtime D.C. resident. I asked her, especially on a personal level, how it felt to watch this confirmation uh, proceed. The justice now, no longer judge, lives in the district. She was born in the district, and she was a public defender here. So her affiliations with our city made us particularly proud to see her go all the way up. Because I have senatorial courtesy to name or to recommend certain officials, including district court officials, I recommended Judge Jackson for the U.S. District Court here in D.C., we also got to ask the congresswoman a little bit about D.C. statehood, obviously a huge issue for her. The House passed a bill last year, but it has since stalled. We also saw the Supreme Court last year affirming an earlier ruling that D.C. is not constitutionally entitled to voting representation in Congress. If that matter goes to the Supreme Court, it would be hard for me to see how anybody could oppose that, given the district's uh, present status, which had where it has as many residents as two of our states who have all the rights uh, of the states. We know that to get the same rights that the states have for full voting rights, including voting rights in the Senate, that that would take not a constitutional amendment, but it would certainly take an agreement by both houses. Yeah, a lot, of Congre- a lot of confidence there still from the Congresswoman. And we also asked her a little bit about COVID. We've obviously seen a, lar- seen a large outbreak in D.C. with a number of officials, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, testing positive. And we also saw Mayor Mariel Bowser test positive today as well. I thought we were through this. But when you see uh, high-level officials who themselves have been trying to abide by all the regulations, who've been vaccinated and boosted, uh, it does seem to me that we may we need to take a step back. Uh, and of course, on that note, yes, we saw D.C. officials 
D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, uh, the uh, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, uh, Merrick Garland, the Attorney General. Uh, we're, I've already lost track of exactly how many House members have gotten it. I thought it was pretty notable uh, that she said, yeah, this is the kind of thing that uh, would require us to rethink exactly where the mask mandates stand, Emily. Yeah, I mean, D.C. has been, I think, compared to other parts of the country, pretty strict when it comes to making sure there's the social distancing, making sure that there is the mask mandates. And I think there's still some concern, particularly, remember, if you're a parent and you've got a kid who's under five, that kid isn't vaccinated yet. And so for you, the pandemic is still a very real thing. That's a good point on kids and schools, obviously. And, and you know, I think we'd be remiss not to at least backtrack a little on an issue we talked about all this week, which was the failure of the Senate to uh, come to an agreement on this $10 billion COVID uh, response bill, which uh, would probably have used some funds or some funding flexibility uh, for vaccines, a big focus on therapeutics as well, which I think would be particularly important if there were to be uh, a really significant wave in the U.S. coming up. Yeah, and I just kind of keep thinking about how at the start of Omicron, lots of uh, panic, particularly here in in D.C., but I know elsewhere of people trying to find tests, trying to find uh, other things that they needed at this point and the Biden administration coming out and saying, well, we'll be prepared for the next one. You kind of have to wonder about what that's going to look like if some of this funding is really running out. Now, one final issue we had to bring up, at least I had to. Emily, I don't know about you. I, I live in Adams Morgan. I'm, I'm kind of uphill. I feel like I can touch these helicopters going over my house. Uh, they're loud. And I noticed actually just earlier this week, the delegate, Congresswoman uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton, introduced a bill that would require those helicopters to fly higher, somewhere in the upper registers of where they would normally be required. I don't know if I'm alone. I, I, I suspect I'm not alone. Have you noticed that uh, these helicopters for, I think, the last couple of years going all over the city really low? I mean, I feel like being a resident in D.C. means that you're going to be late to things because of motorcades. It means that you're going to have helicopters flying overhead. It means you're going to have a little fewer bomb threats than perhaps other cities do. I'll be I'll be honest out in Hill East. It's not quite as big of an issue uh, with the helicopters, but there have been many a time where I've been caught off guard by that that close worrying noise overhead. The members of Congress themselves may not have to deal with it if it's not so bad over in the eastern section. Here's what uh, the Congresswoman had to say about that. I think I'm, I'm going to be able to get that through. This helicopter noise has become a huge problem in the District of Columbia, requiring them to fly at a certain status where they do less damage uh, to people sleeping and other activities will be, uh, I expect that bill to pass the House, so she's got some work to do there. She'll she'll gather her co-sponsors that got uh, sent over to the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. And it's you know it's interesting to to have this conversation with DC's member of Congress as someone who doesn't get to uh, doesn't have the voting right on the floor of the House, but uh, sort of factors into all of these things. She's she'll she'll work on on that kind of issue. She's brought up uh, National Park Service uh, helicopters. It's you know it's just. Uh, 
kind of a, a fun Friday uh, interview to talk to someone who's in such a unique position in the House of Representatives. I'm going to see if she can sponsor a bill to make sure that when I'm blocked by a motorcade that my car or any D.C. car is just able to get right on through. I think that would be another big win for D.C. residents. Work that into the legislation. <laughs> you know, and uh, on the appropriations beat, I would point out, you know, they jokingly refer to the person in charge of general government spending as the mayor of D.C. or the real mayor of D.C. Uh, because so much of Congress, so many issues in Congress play into the governance of the District of Columbia. Coming up, we'll go back to the panel. We've got Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno and Rick Davis with us to talk about everything Congress did and didn't accomplish in this wild week in Washington. You're listening to the fastest hour in politics and policy with Emily Wilkins. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg's. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. We saw Katanji Brown-Jackson confirmed as the first black woman this week on the Supreme Court. Uh, the COVID funding bill fell apart in the Senate. We're going to talk about even more than that, the semiconductor China competitiveness bill, whatever happens to build back better and what will it be renamed someday. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick co-hosting today with Emily Wilkins. We're in for Joe Matthew, who's coming back next week. Let's go to the all-star panel. We've got Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno and Rick Davis with us. Guys, uh, the, the week was kind of dominated by the news on Katanji Brown-Jackson's confirmation, a lot of drama around that COVID bill falling apart. But there's some important things to look forward to for when Congress comes back that didn't get quite as much attention. I've had my eye on this semiconductor bill. Uh, speaking of renaming bills, the bill of many names, <laughs> Endless Frontiers, Yusika, whatever you want to call it, the one with the money for semiconductor uh, production. Um, Rick, where do you see that going? I noticed they, they named conferees. The House has done its thing. The Senate has done its thing. They've got to come up with something that can pass in both chambers. Uh, is this one last gasp of real bipartisan legislation before we go all in on campaign politics this year? Yeah, I, I don't know about that, uh, but I do agree with you that this the USICA, which is what I'm calling it these days, is, uh, is the, probably one of the most major pieces of legislation that's gone unattended to, you know, in this Congress. And, and now that they're getting out, uh, for a couple of weeks, it's 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 a crying shame because it's actually something outside of the the nomination process that you talked about, outside of the war in Ukraine that's gotten a lot of attention and bipartisan support. This is something that we can actually do for our own country in our competitiveness, and and yet, you know, 
Differences remain between the House and Senate. At least we've got conferees. That's a good step. But this thing has lasted way too long. This needs to get done right away when they get back, and it needs to get signed in, and we need to go about our business rebuilding our supply chain. Rick, our Senate guy, calling the bill by its Senate name, Yusika. I am personally a fan of Endless Frontiers. Poetic. Um, It is. It really is. And Jeannie, I kind of want to get into this whole conference committee because we were waiting for it for so long, and then we saw the lawmakers be named to it. It's more than 100 lawmakers. Jeannie, how is this going to work exactly with 100 people in a room negotiating? Is this kind of just for show or something actually going to happen here? You know, (laughs) I'm listening to you and Jack talking about low-flying helicopters in D.C. We heard about this crazy fox on Capitol Hill. And when they assigned these conferees just before they left town, I said, yep, there it goes again. This is D.C. at work. To your point, it is incredibly difficult for that many people to negotiate in any way. So what we're going to have to see is we're going to have to see who emerges as leaders of this thing to push it through. To Rick's point, it's wildly popular. It should be done. It's in all of our interest. If you are an American citizen, this is absolutely important to the country. And yet it is stalled. And I am not optimistic we're going to see a lot of movement forward when they get back in two weeks. Because again, everything when they get back is going to be about the 2022 midterm election. And there's no escape from that. You guys make a good point on the number of people on these conference on this conference committee. I've couple, covered a couple conference committees before. This is technically the way it's supposed to go. This is regular order. The House bill, the House passes something, the Senate passes something. They come together. Uh, a lot of the time, they don't do that. A lot of the time, to for example, fund the government, it's you know Nancy Pelosi gets in the room with a, a Senate Republican and and they try to figure it out. Uh, speaking of things that are probably going to take a, a bit of a sloppier, messier course going forward. At least that that would be my prediction. And uh, of bills being renamed, whatever happens of the remnants of Build Back Better will be really important. We don't know exactly what it'll be. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin has talked about at least half of whatever money they raise from tax increases would need to go to uh, deficit uh, deficit cutting measures. I'm curious what you guys expect actually could get into this reconciliation bill of the the leftovers of what failed with Build Back Better. Uh, Rick, what do you think stands the best chance of actually becoming law of those democratic priorities? You know, it's hard to tell. I think that the appropriators are actually interested in going through uh, the regular order of appropriations now. You know, I mean, we we, we don't realize it, but uh, we we were six months into this appropriation cycle when we finally passed last year's budget. Uh, And so I do think that could turn out to be an interesting uh, debate to follow because things like the child tax credit, which is, again, wildly popular uh, on both sides, but very expensive, could find its way, I think, into potentially some legislation uh, that came right out of that reconciliation bill you're talking about. And Jeannie, you know, as we talk about whatever this bill that shall not be named, as it has been deemed by some in Congress, is going to happen with it, I just want to talk about timelines here, because we know this stuff takes a while. Even if they have an agreement, it still takes a couple weeks to go through the Senate. Is there kind of a drop-dead period where, after a certain point, we're just too close to the midterms, there's not enough time left, and and lawmakers are going to have to, to give it up? 
Well, I, I was saying the drop dead period was yesterday, quite frankly. I mean, this was the longest. This was six weeks. Congress was in. They had a chance to do this. And then what did we hear reported in the last couple of days? That Kristen Cinema has been telling donors and others that a path to reviving the Build Back Better bill and any of its sort of skinnied down versions, whatever you want to call them, is a no- non-starter. And apparently there's also reports that she hasn't been, you know, reached out to or however you want to put it, in terms of coming to her to get a deal. And of course, any one of these senators can kill a deal like that. So I think it's highly unlikely we see anything like this go through, particularly when that's what we're hearing out of the all-important senator from Arizona. Speaking of all-important Arizona senators, Rick, I just want to get your thoughts on where Kirsten Cinema is. We've talked for a long time over the last year or so about Joe Manchin. How pivotal is uh, Senator Cinema? Yeah, Joe Manchin opposed the reconciliation on primarily um, uh, policy uh, grounds. Uh, Kirsten Sinema uh, opposed it on primarily funding grounds. Uh, she does not believe we should be, you know, raising taxes at a time where the economy is already uh, potentially in turmoil. And 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 arguably, the she she looks back on uh, the Trump tax cuts as something that helped grow an economy in the middle of a pandemic. So. Uh, and who wants to raise taxes right before a midterm? So uh, if you if you need revenue for this, you got to get through Kirsten Cinema, and if you get through her, you got to be crazy to want to put that on your your party uh, raising taxes right before a midterm election. Okay, so let's talk about spending, 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 not raising revenue. I have been fascinated by the years-long effort that has now come to fruition to bring back earmarks. Uh, they, in this omnibus bill that just recently was enacted, the government funding measure was the first one to include earmarks, specific projects, local projects that lawmakers wanted to write into the bill uh, since they were banned for a decade after the Tea Party 2010 uh, election, the Tea Party wave when the Republicans had a, a lot of sort of good governance measures uh, and, and eliminating earmarks was a big priority then. They brought them back. There were some Republicans involved. Democrats were a little more enthusiastic enthusiastic. Um, guys, any takeaways from, uh, you know, Democrats talked about this so much, we're already talking about Republicans taking back the House. Has has this been enough of a success so that we should expect this to stick? Or are Republicans going to come back uh, and just eliminate them again, Rick? Well, you know, pigs at the trough. I mean, they don't have a party on them, right? Uh, this spending is crazy. Uh, John McCain was one of the great advocates for getting rid of earmarks when we had them before, and he's probably rolling over in his grave considering how much money was spent on these. Uh, so, sure, it, once you get into that 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 spending and and earmarking, it's addictive and. Uh, and even though you're spending it in many cases on things that are good, like, you know, law enforcement and education and whatnot, it still doesn't go through the kind of inspection, uh, which leads you to things like the bridge to nowhere, which is what got rid of the earmarks to begin with. So well, the, um, the, recent, the late Don Young would hate to hear you say that, <laughs> I would point out. Yeah, well, that was a fight that I truly enjoyed. But um but the bottom line is, yeah, I mean, I, I think you can expect it until somebody steps up who's a reformer and says, hey, this is exactly what uh, leads to corruption and, and overspending and, 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 and we got we to gotta get rid of these again. But I, I, I wouldn't hold my breath to hear that person rise up to do- tomorrow. So Jack's not going to say this because he's too humble, but everyone needs to go onto the terminal and read his story breaking down 
all of these earmarks, these nearly 5,000 earmarks, more than $9 billion in spending. I mean, he's he's slaved over hot spreadsheets for hours and hours on end True. to give really the most comprehensive data. Some other people have put it out. Forget them. Jax is exactly <laughs> what you want. You need to go on the terminal. You need to find it. Jack, you are truly the, the earmarks guru. I just kind of want to get your sense what your main takeaway was from this entire process. I mean, they didn't even hit the limit that they set for right. themselves on how much they could spend. Kind of what is the ultimate takeaway here? What did we accomplish with this bringing the earmarks back? That's an interesting point, you know, of the, and I can tell you the exact number out of experience, 4,975 earmarks included in this. They they said, look, we want these some good governance measures to limit this. We're only going to allow it to get up to 1% of discretionary funding. They didn't even get to that. 1% would be $15 billion. They ended up at about $9.7 billion. There was there were some rules in place to limit uh, earmarks that weren't in the, the previous era. And there may have been a little bit of nervousness. You know, uh, Maggie Hassan in the Senate, a moderate, for example, uh, didn't, didn't participate because she said she wanted to see how this process goes. It, it was something that made some moderates a little bit nervous. And I'm curious if they get a little more aggressive in the future if they continue this. Uh, look, I could talk for hours about earmarks. Uh, you can read the whole Excel document. But thanks again to our, our panelists, Jeannie Sheenzano and Rick Davis, Congressman Jim Jordan and Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton. With Emily Wilkins, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.